Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode 80 of ADHD for Smartass Women. In this episode, I am going to introduce you to Janet Murray. Janet is a content marketing expert, author, and international speaker who has managed to build a multiple six-figure business with multiple streams of income, including a membership community and online courses. She is also the creator of the Social Media Diary and Planner, a content planning tool for coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs. Over the past five years, Janet has published over 400 podcast episodes, a book, and thousands of words of email marketing copy, despite, in her words, being one of the most disorganized people on the planet. You see, Janet, like us, was recently diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45. So how does she do it? Well, she creates easy-to-follow systems and processes to help her stay productive, strategies that work for anyone who struggles to stay focused. Janet, did I get all that right? Yes, you did. You did a really good job. You did great. (laughs) Wonderful. Welcome. You know, I stumbled over my words a bit because I was thinking as I was talking and I had this huge aha. You know, I have struggled so much with these things that you are brilliant at. I also have an online business, but I was thinking, especially with like Instagram, like all those tools we're supposed to use, Hootsuite and Planoly and Buffer and Plan and Later. And I'm telling you, no matter how hard I try, I cannot use any of them. I just don't understand their organization systems. So what ends up happening is I just have to post organically when I feel like posting. And I'm, I'm thinking, I bet if there's any process I can follow, it's yours because I'm pretty certain you would make things very linear for me. Yeah. But actually I post a lot of my stuff organically, not because I don't know how to use these things, but I just, I just find it easier. I just find it easier just to get the copy and just paste it. Well, you know what? That makes me feel so much better because 
you know, when you have an online business, the first thing they talk to you about is, you know, social media and how to post. And they're constantly throwing these applications out. And as I said, I just, I've never been able to make them work. And so I've always thought, what the hell is wrong with you? So thanks for that. You've already made me feel better. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad. Okay. So I want to tell our listeners a little bit of our backstory. Apparently, you were a lurking member of our Facebook group of the same name, ADHD for Smartass Women. So we'd never spoken before. But then one night, a couple of weeks ago, I got a message from LinkedIn about an article that you had written and tagged me in. And it was so beautifully written. And of course, I could relate. And so I was hoping that you could share a little bit about what you wrote. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with ADHD at the grand old age of 45. And I got my diagnosis. And to be honest, I just sat on it for a couple of weeks. Because even though I suspected that I'd had it for ages, it was still quite a shock getting the diagnosis. So I saw um, a psychiatrist here in the UK and I did all the tests and about 20 minutes in, she's like, yep, yep, you've definitely got it. But even so, I just felt like I couldn't, I just couldn't talk about it. And then, uh, so I run this online business and one day we had a team meeting and it just came out and I told my team and that was like the first step. And then I decided once I'd told them that I I felt okay to write about it. So I wrote a Facebook post to start off with and I just made a list of my symptoms, the things that I've been experiencing for the whole of my life. And I went through some of those and then I published that over on LinkedIn. Would it be helpful for me to go through some of the things that I shared? Yeah, I just thought the article was so beautifully written. And I was in awe of, of course, we don't have linear brains, but just how linearly it was written. Honestly, I've been doing this for, well, the podcast for almost two years now. And I read your article and I thought, how could she get all that in such a short amount of time? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my background is, of course, I'm a journalist by trade. So I've been writing professionally for years and years. So that's how. So that's how I did it. But it was interesting, yeah, because I just shared a list of, it wasn't even symptoms. It was just like, these are the things that I've been feeling. These are the things that I've been experiencing for like the whole of my life. And now I realize that they're symptoms of ADHD. I talked a little bit about how I probably didn't have the classic presentation and how people might look at me and not think I was hyperactive or any of the things that you might associate with ADHD. And then I talked about some of the coping strategies that I'd used over the years kind of inadvertently. And I shared some resources that I'd found really useful, one of which was your Facebook group and your podcast. And on my Facebook page, I mean, I just got hundreds and hundreds of comments. I got a lot of comments on LinkedIn as well. And I think you posted it in your group. And people were saying things like, oh my God, you know, you've just kind of put into words these things that I've been thinking and feeling for years and years. And I was so glad I shared it because although it was kind of hard and it was a bit vulnerable, it's just seemed to really touch people. And so many people said, you've just put this into words, what I've been thinking for years and years. Like, thank you for putting it so, so succinctly. You did. So tell us what were some of the symptoms? What were the things that you had always thought, why do I do this? And it turned out it was ADHD. So uh, I'll run through some of the main things. So the first one was, why am I so brilliant at some things? Like, 
really, really good at some things, but just suck so badly at other things, <laughs> which was my school reports kind of really showed that up. Um, I talked about why was I bad at friendship? Like, why couldn't I remember people's birthdays? Why uh, was I not very good at keeping in touch with people and, and kind of doing all the things that you're supposed to do uh, in order to be a friend? I talked about why am I so good with words, but I frequently get muddled up with numbers and dates. Why am I so forgetful? Why do I get mixed up with things? Like, why do I get excited about new things and then lose interest in them absolutely straight away? Why do I struggle with detail? I talked about how, for me, a project that's detailed and it's got loads of moving parts and instructions, I find it like physically painful. <laughs> so they were probably, the, the. I mean, I shared a whole list. There were about 15 of them. And But they were probably the ones that resonated with people the most. I talked about getting bored so easily with relationships and meetings and, and work. And it was just this whole list almost of like what I previously just thought were kind of uh, personality quirks. I talked about things like why I don't like going on holiday and why I'm a workaholic and why I'm constantly hyped up all the time and why I just can't relax. And these were things for years and years. I just thought these are just personality quirks but actually turn out to be symptomatic, I should say, of ADHD. So Janet, will you tell me a little bit about what you were like as a child? Yeah, so this is really interesting because I almost backed up or backed out, should I say, of having the test done because I, I did all the reading and did all the research as when I started to suspect that I might have it. And then I kind of read, well, you have to have all of the symptoms from when you're a child. And I've since learned, as I've done more research, that actually in girls, it often shows up much later. But actually, I was a pretty good kid. And when mm -hmm. I told my parents, they said, but you were such a good kid. And it's difficult for me to go into too much details without kind of breaking any confidence. But I had a, a sibling who was pretty quite hyperactive, I guess, and was always in trouble. And there was always stuff going on, was always, you know, very, very bright, but there were always, always problems, always in trouble. So I was like the good kid in comparison. And I just kind of got on with things. There were a few little things that showed up in my school reports when I was younger. This is up to the age of about 10. Um, messy handwriting, uh, said I used to rush my work. But the other thing that came out was sensitivity. So I was a, just a massively sensitive child. So even though I was quite good at my work, I was quite a good all-rounder. I was quite good at most of my subjects and I was particularly good at writing and English, but I was really sensitive. And I was bullied for a whole year of primary school to the point where I didn't want to go to school. And it was, it was that kind of horrible exclusion that girls do to each other, you know, where you go to school one day and your friends and want to talk to you. And then the next day, nobody wants to talk to you. And there was kind of one girl in particular. And I remember the um, psychotherapist, she asked me, why do you think you got bullied? And I said, well, it's because I cried all the time. Like I literally, somebody could say anything to me and I would just burst into tears. And so I since now know that that is indicative of rejection sensitivity dysphoria. I'm still getting my head around how to say it, which is an extreme form of sensitivity, but I was extremely sensitive. And my family would just say to me all the time, why are you so sensitive? You just need to stop being so sensitive. But I could literally cry. And I used to read this article in a book that I had about how to stop yourself from crying. I used to read it over and over and over again, because uh, I just wanted to learn how not to cry. So I did, I toughened up. Um, so I was quite a good all-rounder at school. I struggled with maths. I started to struggle with um, math, as you would say about the age of 10, 11, and that kind of started to show up. But for me, things really started to go downhill at 
secondary school. So this would be between 11 to 18. And I just kind of lost interest in everything apart from three subjects. So I was really interested in English. I was interested in history and I was interested in music. And I was interested in nothing else. And if you look at my school reports from that time, apart from those three subjects where I got fantastic feedback from my teachers and really good grades, every other subject said could do better, not achieving her potential, uh, underperforming, underachieving, not attentive. And it was like reading a school report for like two different people, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so during those years, was the emotional sensitivity better or did you just learn how to mask it better? I think I just learned how to mask it because I realized early on that if you cry every five seconds, you're you're <laughs> not going to get on, you know, life is going to be tough. So I toughened up and I learned how to. And I think as I've grown older at times, people have sometimes seen me as having a bit of a hard shell, but I think I had to develop a bit of a hard shell to, to cope with being so sensitive. And I felt very isolated when I was at secondary school. I felt like I I didn't kind of fit in. I always felt like I was like the third or fourth person in the group. I felt like it was really difficult to make close female friends. I felt like I didn't really understand what the rules were of female friendship. I felt like I was always kind of almost like getting it wrong all the time. And and I also, I didn't want to do anything I didn't want to do. And I think as, as you know, when you're in part of a female friendship group, there's kind of unwritten rules. Well, certainly I feel that way that, you know, you have to go to a certain number of events or you have to kind of go to certain parties or be involved in certain things. And I just didn't really want to toe the line. I kind of just wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to pick and choose. But when you're picking and choosing, after a while, people start to stop asking you. And I remember being anxious about like Millennium New Year. I I didn't want to um, go out anywhere because I was worried about being stuck somewhere that I didn't want to be because that kind of thought of being somewhere that bored me or I didn't like, I just couldn't stand it. So I used to kind of sometimes make some kind of odd social choices. And as a result, I got dropped a lot, I think, from friendship groups because I I wasn't consistent. And, you know, I, I kind of be all in with them for a while. And then I kind of like, drop out again so I found that whole thing quite confusing I also had this sense and this from a really early age I felt like I was much cleverer than everybody gave me credit for and I just had this sense that I remember being in primary school and I was always on the top table that's kind of how they do it in the UK they put you in tables but I kind of felt like I had other friends and I was like I'm just as clever as them my grades are just as good but for some reason I'm not being given the same recognition then when I got to secondary school and I wasn't performing in some of those subjects but the other thing as well is that I was such a high achiever in some subjects so I was outperforming the cleverest kids in the class in the subjects that I was really good at but in the ones that I didn't like I wasn't interested in I was just kind of like bottoming out completely so I don't really know what I thought at the time, but I felt quite awkward. And when I was about 16, I moved schools and it's quite different. The education system in the UK is different, but we were at that time, it was A A grades to E grades. And I remember in my GCSEs, so the exams you take at 16, I think I got five A grades and four E grades in my mock exams, which is kind of a direct correlation of the effort that I put in. And I managed to kind of pull it up. So I got four or five A grades and five C grades in the end, but I just scraped through math, science, chemistry, the things I wasn't interested in. And then something interesting happened when I was 16, I had to move to a different school because I wanted to study music. And I went to this school, it was a selective academic school. You had to get a certain level of grades to get in there. And because I was doing subjects that I loved, I was like 
top of the class. I was outperforming everybody. And it was interesting. I remember my teacher asking me if I was going to apply to study at Oxford or Cambridge. And I kind of laughed because, you know, at my other schools, I'd just been this kind of kid that was good at a couple of things, but was, you know, just kind of scraping along in everything else, not trying hard enough, not being attentive enough. And so I didn't really take it seriously, but from her point of view, and she didn't know me moment before, she thought I was this like really A-grade, really high achieving student because I was outperforming everybody at a selective school. But that's because I think I was in my area of hyperfocus. I was really interested. I loved the subject. So um, that was me. So I think it was, you know, when I was younger, it was this sensitivity, but I was kind of doing okay at school. And then I think things started to unravel a bit when I got into secondary school and I struggled particularly with maths as well I was a good musician I was a good performer but I struggled with the theory side of music because it's very uh it's very mathematical and that was really hard for me so that was me does that give you a a sort of overview of my childhood yeah and it sounds very ADHD to me now you have been diagnosed inattentive or are you combined type combined okay you're combined type So then once you got out of secondary school, did things get better because suddenly you could be studying what it is that you wanted to study? Well, no, not really, because I I went to, (laughs) I went to, um, uh, so I was originally going to study music and I had this incident, like a, it's quite a sensitive incident where I used to get picked to do all the solos. And because although I wasn't brilliant at theory, I was a good performer. And I remember this girl came up to me and she said to me, you know, I'm much better than you. I should have got to do that particular solo, whatever it was. And in that split second, that kind of impulsiveness, I decided that I wasn't going to study music and I was going to go and study English instead because that would be easier for me. So I ended up going off to, in that you know split second, changed my life and went off to study English. But I found university quite hard. And though I was studying English, English literature, I really loved it at school, but the broadness of it was just too, it was, it was too broad. Like I had to study too many books and I was like translating Chaucer and Old English and I just found it really boring. (laughs) I found most of it boring. I think I enjoyed the last term or something because I was doing a dissertation and I was able to work on the books that I liked. And I felt quite isolated at university. Again, I had this sense that I hadn't quite met my people I felt like I didn't really connect I made a few friends but not really like what I thought university was going to be all about so I kind of I was a bit bored by university I was a bit kind of disillusioned but I mean what else was I going to do I didn't really have enough to do I didn't have many lectures so I didn't really enjoy it and I considered dropping out in my final year again kind of on impulse but I had quite a bad car accident when I was in my second year of university when I was about 20 and I just randomly decided I was going to drop out because it was, you know, it was quite traumatic, a really traumatic accident. I probably should have died really. And so it was quite difficult to get over. And I just decided I was going to drop out of university. But luckily my tutors taught me around and I finished it. But I'd say I, I enjoyed maybe one or two terms. The rest of it, I was just kind of just getting through it really. And I think that transition to university, I just found that particular transition really difficult. Um. By your senior year, I don't know if they call it senior year in the UK, but by your last year, did you feel like you kind of had it figured out or was it more just, I'm just going to get through this and get to the end? Yeah. Is it always like that, looking for the next thing, which I can relate to and never yeah. really 
<laughs> you know what yeah. I mean, right? Yeah, no, I was. I just had to finish it. And I, by that point, I did have a couple of turns when I enjoyed it because I was able to study the books that I liked. I was able to make choices about what I wanted to study. I didn't have to study somebody else's curriculum. And I felt like it was interesting, my English degree, it was the broadness. So what I enjoyed about studying English before that English literature was being able to really dive really deep into a text and really get into it and really kind of focus on it. But, you know, I was supposed to read like four massive big books a week and I used to kind of read the first couple of pages and then answer the first few questions in the seminar so it looked like I'd read the books but you know they were big long boring old books and um, I realized that wasn't for me. So after this car accident I was a little bit all over the place so I was going to go off and train to be a school teacher but I decided to take some time out so I did some kind of sales jobs and sort of drifted about for a year or so and then I decided to go and be a teacher and actually that really suited me because I can never imagine having a job where you have to sit in the same chair and sit in the desk in an office. Like I just, I've never done it and I could never imagine doing it. So teaching you kind of on your feet, every day is different. I was working with teenagers and they were quite challenging. So, you know, that was quite interesting. But the workload, because of my natural workaholic tendencies, I just was burning myself out by my mid twenties because I was just working so hard. I was just like, you know, you're, when you're teaching, you're in the classroom all day. And I worked funnily enough with lots of kids with ADHD as well. Lots of boys who kind of fitted the stereotype and you're in the classroom all day and you're teaching, you're on your feet, you're dealing with these behavior issues. And then you're going home and planning for the next day and marking. And I just really, really overworked. But one thing that I found really difficult about teaching with a couple of things the first thing was the kind of monotony of it so at the beginning of an academic year you would get your planner and you'd have to fill it out for the rest of the year and my stomach would just kind of fill with dread the thought that I was going to be in the same place doing the same thing like every Wednesday I kind of struggled with that that just felt too too predictable too too boring and the other side of it was the admin side of it so as an English teacher I had to give out sets of books and I was always in trouble because I could never get a full set of books back in so you give it just seemed impossible the idea that you would have like 30 books with a number inside them and you give them to the kids and then you'd have to record the right number next to the right name and then somehow get this book back off the kid and my register was always wrong because I found it really difficult to actually you put the right mark in the right box next to the right person. I was always making mistakes all the time. And, you know, that's when you're a teacher, obviously, you know, saying who's in school and who isn't in school is quite important. But I found the paperwork side of it really hard because I always struggled. I mean, I haven't touched on this. We struggled with paperwork, struggled with money, which is another topic that we could talk about. But I was always losing bills and forms and paying things late and and so the whole admin side of being a teacher was really tricky. Well, and then I think about, you know, my ADHD son, the other side of it being a parent, right? And remembering all of the books that he would lose. So I can't even imagine being a teacher with ADHD <laughs> to juggle all this. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. Okay, so then what happened after that? At some point I remember you became a journalist, right? Yeah. So I'd always actually secretly harbored being a journalist, but somewhere someone along the line told me that it was too difficult to be a journalist and work on the national newspapers if you didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge and have connections or whatever. I don't know who told me that, but I think I believed it. Um, but anyway, I decided to go off and retrain. And that was what I really always wanted to do because I wanted to write. Although I discovered that journalism is actually... It, the writing is only a small part of it. You know, the rest of it is about relationships and research and being tenacious and all that kind of stuff. 
So I went off and retrained to be a journalist and I decided right from the off that I wanted to be freelance. I didn't want to get a job in a newspaper or a magazine because I didn't want to be tied down and I didn't want to have to go into an office every day and work with people. And I just knew that wouldn't suit me. So I trained in journalism, became a freelance journalist, and I spent probably the best part of I think it was 18 years in the end, like writing and editing for national newspapers like The Guardian. It really suited me, journalism, because it was quite exciting. And I always did my homework in the last minute and I always did all my university work in the last minute. So I taught journalism as well. I was a university lecturer. And I used to say to my students, like, if you're the kind of kid that did your homework on the last minute, then journalism will really suit you because if you can produce good work and do it at the last minute, then it, you know, you have to work really tight deadlines. It's exciting. There's adrenaline. And the great thing about journalism is that you're generally only working on one thing at a time. So yes, you might be working on multiple articles, but then you'll put your head down and you'll just work on that one article. And I really struggle with detail, but I didn't struggle with it as a journalist because I might be fact checking one article. So I'd write one article, then I'd be checking all the quotes were correct. I'd be checking that there weren't any legal problems and that, you know, all my sources were correct. And I could cope with doing that on one thing, on one article. And then you do that and then you move on to the next one. But if somebody gave me like a copywriting project where I had like 20 different pieces of writing to juggle and had to collect photos and stuff like that, I would find that really, really hard. So I did enjoy it because it was different. I used to sometimes go in and cover for an editor at The Guardian in the newspaper office and I hated it. I didn't mind the job, but I had to sit in the same chair and with the same people. And I just remember thinking, how does anybody get anything done in an office? Because like it's so noisy and there's so many distractions and there's people coming up and talking to you and even like people cooking smelly food and things like that like people coming like warming their lunch up and it being really smelly and and there were just all these things and I used to do the editing at home I'd like get up at five o'clock do the editing at home and then go in and then I'd be like sort of working on my own freelance stuff during the day and just doing bits and pieces because I just couldn't concentrate on doing you know I couldn't write an article in office or I couldn't I just found the whole that whole atmosphere. So I remember me- meeting a friend actually after a three week stint on the newspaper, and he said to me, "It looks like you know the life's been sucked out of you." <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt. I felt like it was just so awful to have to go to this office every day. And it sounds so privileged, doesn't it? Like, oh, I can't work in an office. I can't possibly sit well, with people. You know. <laughs> so, we can relate. We can totally relate, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> but I just couldn't do it. And then what happened is I accidentally fell into what I'm doing now. So I was, you know, writing for newspapers and people started asking me like, well, how do I get into the press? You know, I've got a business. So how do I get press coverage for my business or my brand or whatever? So I started this blog and I was just like giving people tips on how to get into the press and how to write press releases and things like that. And people started to kind of find me online. I was like, well, that's interesting. Like people are finding me and I thought this would be really good because people were finding me and booking me to do like training work or consultancy work so it'd be good if I can get more people to find me so I started to learn about search engine optimization and how to get people to find your content then I started to learn about email marketing and social media and I started to see oh I could actually make a business out of this I could sell online training and courses and people could pay me money and then I wouldn't have to do any of this you know journalism stuff and I wouldn't ever have to go into the office and so I just kind of fell into doing it and then sort of it kind of evolved. I can't even remember how it how it all happened. Uh, but nowadays I have an online business and I sell online courses and, and memberships. 
and I absolutely love it so I teach other people how to build online audiences I teach people how to get more social media followers and subscribers and all of that kind of stuff and it's brilliant I do it all from home I travel I speak I've written a book I've got a podcast but all of that was just totally accidental but entrepreneurship just totally totally suits me because I always felt strangulated in an organization because you'd have an idea and then you'd have to get people's permission or you'd have to kind of go through all this red tape but actually when you're an entrepreneur if you have an idea you can just do it you can set your own schedule you can work whenever you want to work and you can not work when you don't want to work and it's great I love it but totally fell into it by accident. Okay so Janet what has changed since you were diagnosed? So it's really early on for me so I'm probably two months in I think to my diagnosis and it's it's just such early days but I just feel like I understand myself a lot better and all of these things that I've been basically beating myself up for for the whole of my life and thinking I'm this terrible person because I can't stick at, stick at certain things or I can't remember people's birthdays or I'm not a good friend or I'm not a good daughter or wife or whatever it might be. I feel like I understand myself better. And even in just a few months, I think I'd already developed quite a lot of coping strategies to help me cope. So for example, I'd already worked out that the best time of day for me to work was the morning and that I work best without interruptions. So I'd already changed my schedule so that I don't take any calls or do any consultancy or do anything until midday. So I just have this big, long stretch of time where I can get big blocks of work done. I've always been quite productive anyway. I'm quite a competitive person. I like deadlines. And so I've been using actually, um, at your recommendation, using Focusmate uh, and jumping on and doing sessions there, like co-working sessions with people online because I love accountability. I worked out that time blocking work for me. I I plan in quarters. So I I plan my content in quarters. I plan my time in quarters. So there's actually a lot of things that I was already doing, but I kind of understand why why I had to do them, why I had to clear my morning. Like I get up at 5am and have done for years and years. I understand now why I kind of had to do that. It was the only way I could kind of keep on, on top of everything. The one thing that has changed is I've been trying medication. It's really, really early days. I remember the psychiatrist said to me, if there was one thing that you could change, like when we were discussing, what would it be? And I said, well, I'd just love to I'd love to enjoy a holiday or I'd love to enjoy a day off because I just literally can't turn my brain off. And in my case, the hyperactivity is mental. I'm not physically hyperactive, it's mental. And so the drugs, um, well, it's been weird. (laughs) Um, I've only got onto a full dose in the last few weeks and I've had some days when I've been a little bit trippy. I've had some days where I felt a little bit strange, but it's the clarity and the focus. Like I'm quite a productive person and I've my output's really high anyway, despite the distractions, because I've kind of found these ways to cope. But just sitting there and being able to completely clear your head and get on with something has just been amazing. Like, I just can't describe it really. But it is early days. So medication does work for you, or it, it appears to be working for you? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it is early days. So I wouldn't like to say for sure. But I've definitely noticed I've read about that kind of people saying like the fog has been lifted and that's definitely a feeling that I've got but at the same time it's been a bit strange and it's been a bit trippy (laughs) a few days and I'm not sure about that so you know it feels quite early to say and also I haven't 
like I think the test for me will be going on holiday or something and and actually can can I relax on holiday like can can I just you know I I found holidays like painful because I, I just didn't enjoy them because it just feels like there's all this time to fill and like quite stressful in a way so but I think that will be a test I can relate to you on the holidays. I am not good sitting by a pool or sitting at a beach at all. My family just, (laughs) they know better. When we go on vacation, half of the time we're out and we're exploring and, you know, seeing new things, meeting people, going on, you know, beer and taco. Anyway, that's what we did in Mexico this last. We hired a um, sous chef from Spain to take us all around to like the small little hole in the wall places for tacos and beer. (laughs) And it's the kind of thing that my family is like, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. do we have to do this? But they're always happy afterwards, you know? And those Mm -hmm. are the memories that I think we take from vacation. And so I am curious when you say you struggle with holidays, is it going anywhere or is it just sitting at a beach and doing nothing? No, I mean, I love travel and I travel a lot with my work. So I've been lucky enough to travel to like Boston and Nashville and Milan and all over the place to speak. I love that because it's exciting and it's unexpected. You don't know what's going to happen at the other end. Like you don't know who you're going to meet. And I love all of that because it's so unpredictable. I think it's the expense of time that you have to fill in this expectation that if you you're on holiday, you have to relax. So I have to talk, like when I think about some of my best holidays or my best holiday experiences, like we went to Malta a few years ago and we went on this Jeep tour and we went, you know, like cruising around this island for a day. And it was such great fun. It was such a great memory because it was different and it was interesting. It was unexpected, but it's that pool thing or even just sitting outside a holiday home and reading. Or I mean, I can read. I know not everybody, everybody with ADHD can, that would be less, less so than I could before. But just that idea of sort of lying by a pool with a book, like I'm demented within about an hour <laughs> doing that. And um, I'm just so bored by it. And it's hard because you feel you feel selfish with your family because they seem to my daughter, you know, we haven't talked about much about motherhood, but you know, I feel like as a mother I should be doing, you know, I should be in the pool. Well, she's older now, but she'll be playing with her or she'll be doing this or she'll be doing that instead of sitting there thinking, I'm bored and I want to do something. I want to take someone everywhere. But, you know, it does kind of make you feel terrible because you think, well, other people seem to be okay with this. Other people seem to be having a nice time. Like, wh- why am I? I'm like this alien person who doesn't seem to be enjoying this thing that other people seem to be enjoying. But it is so boring. I mean, you're literally just sitting there and life is going by. Like, I can't even. <laughs> Uh, like you, I can take maybe an hour, maybe two. And I don't know why I can't read there either. But beyond that, no, I just find it really boring. So I meet them halfway. And so my idea is I'll do that part time. But then the other time, you've got to do what I really enjoy doing. And I am absolutely convinced that the adventures and the little trips inside of trips that we do, like I just love to go where the locals are. And I love Mm. to talk to people who are the local people, you know, and those always seem to be the parts of our trip that I think hold the biggest memory. So I think we're doing the right thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you do feel a bit strange because it's like other people seem to enjoy this. I think my husband, when I met him, he had gone to Hawaii like 10 times, like every year at a certain time of the summer, he would go to Hawaii for two weeks. And it's just like, I can't do that. I'm sorry. Okay. So Janet, you have also recorded an amazing podcast episode on your ADHD diagnosis. 
the podcast is called The Janet Murray Show. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I listened to that. And I have to tell you, I have never heard another woman speak so candidly about female friendships. I almost felt like you were speaking for me. I could relate so much to what you were saying. And I cannot also tell you how many women have asked me to please do a podcast episode on female relationships. And I just haven't been ready to go there because, number one, I'd have to admit some things to myself. But, of course, if we're talking on a podcast, we also have to, you know, admit these things to the world. And in your podcast, you share a list of your symptoms and you say everything was why, which is what I loved. And so what you said is, why am I so bad at friendship? Why am I so bad at remembering friends' birthdays, sending baby gifts, asking other people when they're sick, setting up social things, or maybe not bad, just inconsistent? And I was like, oh my God, I could totally relate to what she was saying. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. I'm terrible with birthday cards and gifts. And part of the thing is I'm also terrible at birthdays. I have never liked to celebrate my own birthdays, so I don't really understand the value of birthdays. Yet the weirdest thing is when my kids were little, nobody threw bigger birthday parties than I did. I just loved doing birthday parties. I mean, we had, you know, my daughter come riding up in a horse to, I can't remember what the song is, but it's one of those like bonanza type songs. You don't know bonanza because I you're do, in the I do, I do, I <laughs> do. Yeah. Okay. yeah, we got bonanza. <laughs> We had, um, for my son, we did a Star Wars birthday party where I literally had people show up to the Star Wars music, stormtroopers in their full on, it was Star Wars costumes from the movie. I don't know where these people came from. I think it was Silicon Valley and they were, you know, part of this organization that just loved Star Wars and they agreed to come up. (laughs) I mean, it was just big. Everything I did around my kids' birthday parties was big. But it's so interesting to me that I don't like to celebrate my own birthdays and I don't really understand the value of birthdays beyond kids' birthdays. And so, you know, when you were saying I'm so bad at remembering that, I think about my husband's family is so good with birthdays. Like every year, every child, every adult gets a birthday card. And I have wanted to be like them for, you know, the 20 some odd years that I've been married to my husband. And I just I can't do it no matter how hard I try. Yeah, it's um, I, I think the whole friendship thing is really tough because it feels like there's this whole set of rules that, and particularly around female friendships, like no one's ever written them down, <laughs> so it's really hard to understand. But certainly, I felt when I was growing up, I just felt like it was a world that I didn't understand. And as an adult, I've got a few really close female friends, but they tend to be like me, kind of quite career focused, quite high achieving. So that means they're low maintenance, which sounds awful, but it means that they're not going to get upset with me if I forget to text them back or I disappear. Like sometimes I might disappear for a few months because I'm really into something and I'm really hyper-focused on something. It might be a hobby. It might be a work project. So there's certain types of friends I know they're not going to get offended. They're not going to get upset if I do that. And also men. So I've got a lot of male friends because, you know, this is quite stereotypical, but again, men are less likely to get upset if you forget to text them or you you don't send them a birthday card or you forget to send a baby gift or, or whatever. But yeah, I just always felt like throughout my life, there was just this whole kind of set of rules that I didn't understand. And a lot of it was the thing that I feel about female friendship is I feel that you have to 
in order to be accepted in, into part of a female group, you have to do lots of stuff you don't want to do, like what bores you, just to kind of be accepted and be part of the group. So like I said, I've been dropped, I think, so many times because I felt like when I was sort of in my 20s or late teens that I had certain groups of friends where they would all do the same thing at a certain time of year. Everybody would go to somebody's house for a weekend or they'd all go away on holiday together and I wouldn't want to go. I just want to pick and choose the activities that I wanted to do. Uh, but I realised that actually in order to be part of the group, you kind of have to show up to a certain amount of activities or otherwise you, you kind of get dropped and I remember when my daughter was small as well my daughter's um she's 14 now but when she started school and there were all these mums at the school gate and they were having candle parties and like Tupperware parties and I just can't <laughs> think of anything more boring than going going around and talking about candles and buying candles but I tried to I think because I was probably quite lonely I thought you know what I'm going to give this a try I'm going to see if I can kind of do this and I'd just be there like what's all this candle thing about? I don't understand it. And I thought it was because I was career orientated, you know, maybe it's because I was quite career focused and my job was very important to me. And but now I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm not, maybe, maybe that's just, you know, but it, it feels like in order to be accepted into a group of female friends, you kind of have to do the candle party or the the barbecue or the the girls weekend away or whatever and I just could never seem to conform. I just couldn't seem to keep it up. Uh, does that kind of make sense? It totally makes sense. And it reminds me of when my daughter was very young, I joined our local mother's club and I'm really good at like throwing parties and things like that. And so I got on the board of our local mother's club and I was the social director. So I was responsible for all of the parties, but of course I can't do anything in moderation. So it's always totally over the top. And I would be stuck in these meetings where first of all, I hate meetings and they would literally take two and a half hours. They would talk about nothing. We would get nowhere. And it was just like, you know what? I'm going to do this better than any of you can do it. So just leave me alone. Let me do my job. Show up. It'll be beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so arrogant, but it was exactly the way I felt. And I also had another experience when my daughter graduated from junior high school, where, you know, the whole class wanted me to do all the decorations and, you know, everything for the graduation dinner dance. And again, they wanted to have meetings. And so I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And so one of the women signed up and said she would do it. And then behind the scenes, I told her, or she asked me, can you just help me? And I said, I will do it, but don't make me go to a meeting. Don't make me be part of anything. I will just do it. So then everybody will be happy because they knew I would do a good job. Right. Mm -hmm. And Somehow we ended up in this whole meeting thing and I literally had set it all up. They came to my house. I had the whole table set up. This is what we're going to do. I, you know, I had done all the research. I had bought all the little whatever. And then of course there started to be problems where, well, we don't want to do this and we want to do that. And I'm just like, you know what? You guys either let me do it. I'll do it all the way or don't even include me. Ultimately I ended up doing it, but that was really the wake-up call for me that I am never signing up. I don't <laughs> care what they do to try to get me into it. I'm not doing it. I'm not good at it. I'm not good in groups. I'm not good in meetings. And part of it is if we were doing something I'm not good at, then of course, you know, I wouldn't sign up, right? I wouldn't want any part of it. But you're asking me to do something that I'm going to do better than you guys. So just let me effing do my job. <laughs> I can do it in one-tenth the time too, right? So I can completely relate. And 
piggybacking to what you were saying about the candle parties and, you know, things like that is I noticed that once my kids became teenagers, most of our friends just kind of had evolved into, you know, they were the parents of my kids' friends. So in essence, they had chosen my friends. My kids had chosen our friends, right? Mm. And of course, most of them were very nice, kind people, but I just didn't have a whole lot in common with them. And like you, I was just bored. I don't enjoy small talk. I don't enjoy talking about what handbag I just bought. I don't enjoy going shopping. And I just knew I had to do something different. And so once my daughter was on her way to college, that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to start an online business. It really had nothing to do with, you know, ADHD for smart ass women. I don't know how I ultimately ended up there, but something happened when I started the Facebook group and then now this podcast. And then, you know, of course I had already been building an online business and what it was is exactly what you were just saying. I found women that were like me. I found entrepreneurs and they're so busy too. So it's okay to check in for five minutes. And because of that, it's almost like the pressure is off. And so I do check in, you know? And so the beauty of it is I now have really great friends all over the world. And in some weird way, I now reciprocate so much more because I feel like the pressure has been taken off of me to reciprocate, if that makes any sense. Oh, totally. And and I think what you just said there about you're better at it when you're feeling like you're not having to do these things to fit into a group. You're doing it because you genuinely have made a connection with somebody and you've got something in common with them and you want to keep in touch with them. That's just so different than feeling that you have to do it because otherwise you're going to get kicked out of the group, which is always how and I, I, I'm being kicked out of a group you don't even want to be in anyway. And uh, That's always how I felt. And I think motherhood I spoke about this a little bit in my podcast as well, but I think motherhood really brought it home for me as well. It was a time when I felt really different because I, although I love my daughter and I love being a mum and I love being my daughter's mum, I didn't get the baby thing and I, I couldn't stand sitting around talking about nappies or formula or or any of that stuff or baby groups or toddler groups. I was always the mum kind of on my own at the baby toddler singing class or whatever. I just felt I just felt like an alien. That's a word I used a lot on the podcast, but I just felt like an alien. I just felt like I didn't fit in. And when I became a mum, I think that that became even more kind of prominent, I think. You know, you just said you get kicked out. But I think what it is, is that we kind of kick ourselves out, right? We're not willing to do what they all want us to do. And I've always felt like I'm highly respected. You know, it's not that they think I'm a nut or they don't like me. It's that I'm just not willing to do, like you said, you've got to show up for things. And if you, oh my gosh, like I have one dear friend who I adore and she not anymore, or maybe they're still doing it, but I've now been kicked out. Who knows? But every year she would do just an overnight to Napa. They would do a whole spa day and then um, they'd go wine tasting. And they were lovely, lovely women. I don't know what is wrong with me, but it never failed. I never made the spa portion. I would literally <laughs> just fly in at the ninth hour right before dinner. We would have dinner together. And the thing is, once I'm there, and I'm curious if that's your experience too, Janet, once I'm there for many of these events, you know, like meeting friends or whatever, going to a party, I'm usually really happy I'm there. It's getting myself there that I really struggle with. Now, I'm not talking about candle parties or boards meetings for Mother's Club. I'm talking about being with people that I really 
enjoy their company and I like them. Because even those people, sometimes I struggle with just being able to, first of all, my scheduling sucks. So if it's not something that is a recurring event, which I tell my friends all the time, if you really want to see me, we need to have a recurring event because then there's no thought put into it in terms of I don't have to make the effort to pull out my calendar, figure out when I'm available because that can drag on for months, you know, Mm. where every day I need to do it. Something that's, I mean, this is might be peculiar to me as well, but I've noticed I might love going to a friend's house and having a really nice time at friend's house or meeting a friend for dinner. But I, I hit a wall after about two hours and I'm like, do you know what? I've had a really nice time. I've really enjoyed your company, but now I want to go home and be on my own. <laughs> and that's hard as well. So like, well, you know, me and my husband will go to a friend's house, like people we really, really like, and we'll be having a really nice time. And then suddenly I'll just hit a wall or I'll be at a family party because I can't stand small talk. And I'll do say two hours, two and a half hours. And I'm like, do you know what? I've had enough now, which is why I couldn't do the spa portion either. Cause I'd be like, oh no, that's too long. I can't, I can't do all of that. So I'll just hit my ceiling. I'm like, I've had enough now. I need, I need to go. I just need to be away from everybody and again you know that it can look rude like particularly in the UK as well when people you know nobody actually says what's on their mind in the UK everyone just kind of like uh, skirts around everything but it can appear really rude and and people might feel offended at times because I've gone and had a really nice dinner and really enjoyed the you know and they're like yeah let's get a coffee let's get the brandy out or whatever and I'm like nope I need to go now I've had enough and um <laughs> and I just hit Coffee, a ceiling. Brandy, <laughs> let's get in the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just get to the point I've, I've had my fill of socializing. I'm I'm and I can had had a lovely time, but it will like it will switch. I will switch off. Are you are you introverted, Janet? It's interesting because I speak and I have no problem getting up in front of like hundreds and hundreds of people and speaking, but and on the personality tests I come out as extroverted, but I would say I'm quite introverted with lots of extrovert qualities and I can turn it on when I need to. So you rejuvenate yourself, you get your energy internally rather than from other people. Other people drain your energy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I run my own events. I run big events with hundreds of people and I always walk into the room that's full of people think, oh my God, I can't do this. There's all these people I've got to talk to. I'm fine up on the stage on my own, but I find it overwhelming, like just too many people, too much noise. And when I was younger, I I used to just drink too much because that was the only way to get through it. And now I, I understand myself better. And I think, oh, you know, I, I used to, I didn't like going to clubs and nightclubs, you know, when I was younger. I, oh, I, I just, hate that. Yeah. Plus I'm tiny. I'm not a big woman. And so to be in an environment like that, where people are standing all around me, I cannot stand crowds. I feel totally claustrophobic. Yeah, I hate crowds too. <laughs> um, I am extroverted. And so I am the opposite of you in this way. I really struggle to get there, but once I get there, you know, unless, like I said, it's a recurring event, then I don't have any problem. It's more just all around the scheduling. Once I get there, then I don't leave. <laughs> so I'm one of the ones that you're trying to kick out of your house. <laughs> okay. How about this, Janet? I, I'm curious how you feel about this. So I am often the connector. I bring women together. But what I have discovered is there are times after I connect them that I'm excluded. And I know it's because I struggle to be one of many. You know, I hate meetings. I don't particularly like groups where you're just sitting around chatting about nothing. And I am really difficult 
around the whole victim mentality. So if I see a woman who is constant, I joke all the time, I say I'm basically a man trapped in a woman's body. Mm-hmm. If I see a woman constantly whining about the same thing over and over again, her relationships, her you know, mothering, her business, whatever it is, I want to see some action, right? And so I am the one who's constantly trying to go in there to change how she's behaving in the situation to get her to act. And I think that sometimes the reason why I may not be invited is because it's uncomfortable, you know, to want to change. And sometimes people just need, I guess, not me, but some women need to get together, men too, I'm sure, and just commiserate. And that is really what the relationship is about. And I'm curious if you can relate to that at all. Yeah, so I would feel probably really similar. Like I have no time for for people who moan about things not going their way. I'm like, well, why don't you just do something about it? Like, why don't you stop moaning about it and do so? And I I have to really bite my tongue because I, I can't understand it because... I'm the kind of person that if I want to make something happen, I will just figure out a way to make it happen. And and I will be quite obsessive about it. And, you know, this hyper-focus, I'll just go into hyper-focus. So I'm looking at somebody saying, well, every time I meet you, you're complaining about that thing and you have been for years and years. And yeah, I haven't got, got very much patience with it. I think the other thing, and I, I found this with my business actually, is that I'm so sensitive to rudeness. <laughs> like, so people being rude, and women can be so mean, like, this is the thing, they can be so mean and so, you know, their tone of voice and the way they speak to each other, it cuts me like to the core, like right to my stomach, you know, I feel sick hearing it sometimes. So I know like in my business, for example, I'm really intolerant of people who are rude. I have um, a rule in my membership, like that when people join my membership community, they have to agree <laughs> to a set of rules. And some of it's just about, you know, when I'm available, when I'm not available, what to expect, what not to expect. But one of them is like about not being rude and and you get kicked out if you're rude because <laughs> I just can't, I can't abide it. I think you've talked about your son having this kind of like justice sensitivity thing. And, and, and if I see people being rude or cutting people down or, you know, just using words really harshly and putting people down, which I think women can be so mean in that way. I'm really sensitive to that and I find it quite difficult to move on from it as well if if I think some women just accept other women being bitchy to them and being mean to them and I, I, I find it really difficult to move on from that if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Okay, so the next thing I want to ask you about is this thing called interpersonal intuition, which is the sense that many of us with ADHD, we have that we can literally walk into a room and we know exactly what's going on. Now, I know there are some people, some women with ADHD who really struggle to see those relationships and to have any kind of intuition at all around what's going on. They just don't see it. But I think a lot of us do. And I know that I, you know, I was in real estate for 15 plus years and I really struggled with clients' disrespect for my time. You know, I would know after 15 minutes of meeting with them whether or not this was just like social hour for them and they thought it would be fun for me too to just go around and, you know, look at every property under the sun or if they really were interested in, you know, looking at property and ultimately making a purchase. And it would just drive me nuts. And so, whereas my colleagues would be like, well, I'll take them, I'll take them, I would literally just cut them off usually. Sometimes I would be in situations where it would just go on and go on and go on. And I suddenly realized that this was just kind of what they did for fun. But I think with interpersonal intuition too, 
we know that there's an authenticity there. And when it isn't there, it's like a gut reaction. And I know that part of my issue with relationships is lots of times my friends don't even need to say anything. I know what's going on. And I know when I was younger, I used to get myself into trouble where I would, you know, make a comment about, you know, well, this is not true. This is really, you know, how I feel about this, blah, blah, blah. And they would completely deny it. And I started doubting myself. But then what would happen is whatever we were talking about, suddenly it would come to fruition and I would discover that, oh, well, actually she had said this to someone else. So I wasn't just imagining things. You know, she did feel this way about me or was concerned about I remember when I was younger, you know, about, you know, boyfriends and things like that. And where I was like, I am not interested in your boyfriend. I can promise you that. But she was, you know, one particular woman I'm thinking of was really insecure about it. And so I am curious if you have found that, first of all, do you feel like you have interpersonal intuition? And then if you do, do you feel that that somehow gets in the middle of relationships at times too? Because you just, you know what's going on, even though nobody said it. Yeah, I would say I was pretty intuitive and also I think I'm quite highly emotionally intelligent so I I really kind of read people and read situations I think I mean sometimes I I miss things we all do but yeah I would generally get a feeling about somebody like right from the minute that I meet them and uh, there's a current situation going on in my life at the moment where I'm just kind of like, oh, I knew that. I had that feeling when I met that person. But you sort of talk yourself out of it, don't you? You you, you could kind of tell yourself, oh, you know, you've got to give people another another chance, whatever. But yeah, I would definitely say I was very sensitive emotionally. So I'll pick up on all sorts of things and would get a real gut feeling about people in my stomach. Not a kind of I I don't like you kind of feeling but just like danger watch out um and that that can be quite hard work you know if you're getting these managing these signals about people all over the place it can be quite tiring and quite exhausting I think and yeah and sort of I would spend a lot of time worrying about things and I would sense that somebody didn't like me or sense somebody that you know, somebody had a problem with me for some reason, and and like you say, might might be right about it. <laughs> Whereas I sometimes think, bliss, you know, other people are blissfully going on, like just you know, thinking that everybody loves them and having a much nicer time because of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just know people, and you're right. I mean, maybe it is interpersonal intuition, but also just high emotional intelligence that you just you see things that other people don't see, and part of that is ADHD, right? We make these connections that other people don't make. Mm, Yeah, definitely. The other thing that I have noticed, at least about myself, and I'm curious if you feel the same way, is I have noticed that I look for intensity in relationships. And so I think that because of that, you know, I tend to be the one that doesn't like the cocktail conversation. I don't want to talk about nothing. I want to talk about things that are really important. So I tend to be the friend that is totally there for friends in the middle of very serious relationship problems. Like I'm on speed dial, right? (laughs) And what I have noticed is that some of my friends will completely see why they're in the relationship they're in. They'll say, I'm going to do something different. I don't like to feel like this. I don't want to be like this. And they won't do, you know, make a completely different choice then in their next partner. And they're brilliantly happy. But others, many, just jump right into the same relationship that they had with, you know, their ex-husband or their ex-boyfriend. So they're basically in the same relationship 
but just with another guy. And I find that I take that personally because I think, oh my gosh, we've just spent two, three, four, sometimes even five years, and you're going to go make the same mistake again. But I think what I've done now is because I now finally realize that intensity is so important. Like I want to talk about things that are important. I want to be there for people who need me, you know, rather than the superficial stuff. But because I look for that, I have to kind of now, this is what I'm doing is I'm putting a barrier there. I'm putting a line there because it is so frustrating for me personally to see someone that has so much to offer and is so amazing, right? And they don't value themselves. They deserve so much better. And I just can't see them go through it again. So I have to walk away. Um, so I'm curious, how do you feel about that? Is that something you struggle with? Yeah, I really crave that intensity. And I don't know if you re- relate, but you know, when you sometimes you meet somebody like at an event or a conference and you just click with them, that feeling when you just click, you know, and immediately. And, you, and you click with them immediately, you're having a great conversation. And I actually feel that in my body. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, this is just mm-hmm. amazing. You're just having a really good conversation and you're not talking about mundane stuff, about like nappies or, or kids yeah. schooling or whatever. You haven't, it, you know, about something important that matters, you know, about people's life stories or about um, subjects that really matter to them. And you can feel it in the air. I always feel like you can, you know, you can actually feel that energy. And I think I crave that kind of connection. So yeah, that's, you know, having a conversation with somebody about kids learning phonics or the spelling test or whatever I think that's probably why because I'm just looking for that high because I think you do get a real high when you 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 make a connection with somebody and you meet somebody you know man woman whoever it is and you just emotionally really connect with them and have a great conversation you know that's so different to having a conversation with somebody at the school gate about something that you don't really care about so I think that's partly been a problem with me for friendship as well because I'm looking for that hi I'm looking for that hit I'm looking for that intensity and those really good conversations and like you say you tend to find those conversations in the drama or in people's life stories or you know you just kind of click with people and and I I mentioned this in my podcast as well but when I was growing up I always had loads of boyfriends as well because I was always looking for that excitement in relationship and the intensity and the newness and I feel that in friendship as well it's it's the same thing it's that dopamine baby Okay. So Janet, oh my gosh, I think this is going to be the longest podcast we've ever recorded. Obviously, it was something I really wanted to talk about, but I've got to ask you two more questions before I let you go. I want to know, what are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your success? For me, it's just hyper-focus. So that ability to just get obsessive about something and just get my head down and just want to be the best I possibly can at that thing and that ability to concentrate and yeah just not to let get anything get in the way I mean I'm so productive compared to even without drugs I'm so com- productive compared to other people my output is so high but I literally just get obsessed with things and uh that I, I I want to do and I so I get really good at them because I work you know it's not about talent it's about just working really hard and really loving something and spending lots of hours on it so that you get really, really good to hit. So I think that's probably been my, my main kind of um, superpower and that tenaciousness as well, which really helped me in journalism, like that resourcefulness and tenaciousness. And I think you've talked a lot about resilience as well. I think I'm hugely resilient. I kind of cope with knockbacks and, and get back up again. And that kind of creativity and that 
I think also seeing the connections and the patterns, you know, that's what helps me with writing. It's what helped me as a journalist. That's what helped me in what I do now, just seeing the the connections and the way that things kind of come together and seeing the world um, differently. So I think that's probably the the traits that I think have, have been best for me. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that when I discovered that drivenness was a form of hyperactivity, that is when I finally went, okay, uncle, I give up. It's ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and until I heard you talk about it, I'd never, you know, because my family used to say that about me all the time. You're so driven. You're so driven. You're so focused. You're so driven. And now I realize why, like, how can I, you know, put 200% effort into things that I really want to do, but be completely disinterested in everything else? Right. Inconsistent attention. Yep. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? As I say, it's kind of early days of me knowing about it, but I think that structure's clearly been really important to me. These things that I've worked out inadvertently, like I need to keep my mornings free, I need big blocks of time to work in, and I need to minimise the distraction. Um, I need to not have, you know, I used to have this chaotic business life where I had a call and then I had half an hour and then I had this and that, and, you know, that's just no good good for me. So I think it's about... Um, for me, it's about having structure and habit and repetition. Like I, I'm so habitual. <laughs> if I do something, I, you know, I've done over 400, I've published 413 podcast episodes, I think it is. And so just saying, I'm going to do that every Friday and I'm, I'm going to show up and do that. You know, it's a habit and it's public and I've told everybody about it. So I think structure, accountability is really good for me. Um, and just kind of planning and scheduling as much as possible but kind of doing it my own way. I think I, I can't really fit into other people's organization systems. They have to be my own organization systems, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense because what is so difficult with ADHD is you have this list of symptoms, but not every person with ADHD has those symptoms. We all have different symptoms. So we would also all have different workarounds. So just because it works for you doesn't mean it works for me and vice versa. And I think that's what a lot of us don't understand. So we think that, oh my gosh, okay, I was diagnosed and I still can't get it together. Well, you need to look and see what works for you. Forget about what works for everybody else. Yeah. I'd also say, um, and I know you say this about exercise as well. So I run, oh. I exercise every day if I can. I've got a Peloton now and I've got like a shed at the bottom of my garden. I go down there and just being able to clear my head of all the thoughts. So I, I just need to get outside. I just need to clear all the clutter from my head and for me exercise like really hard exercise for me <laughs> really does that I've run five marathons now I think and um yeah I've done a lot of running and that's helped a lot so tell me about the peloton I'm getting one this week because I have heard that it is the best thing for the ADHD brain would you agree and do you get a really good workout yes it's brilliant and it's so good for the ADHD brain I think in so many ways so it's basically like a static, for those who haven't heard of it, a static um, exercise bike when, and you get exercise classes, but you can do them live and you can do them on demand as well. But what's really good is obviously that, I mean, I'm quite competitive. I don't know if you are, but against myself. Totally. So, yeah. So, so, so you're competing against yourself, you know, what you did last time. Can you improve like the stats that you got last time? You can also compete against other people as well, which I love. So who's there at the time doing the class at the time and you can move yourself up the leaderboard, which is really good. But for me, 
it's the total because I run and I've trained for marathons and I, I find sometimes I can't I still can't switch my brain off when I'm doing that kind of speed of of running but it's so intense that you literally can't think about anything else apart from how tired you are and how and how worn out you are so for me that half an hour I just go and do half an hour at the end of the day come out dripping with sweat but it's completely changed my mood like I I always feel when I'm starting to get um it's another thing I remembered about the drugs actually which I'll come to in a second but um I get very tired in the afternoons and I can really lose focus in, in the afternoons but but kind of going and changing your physical state to change your mental state, it just gets you so worn out that your brain, it's like your brain's wiped clean. And I feel like I need that. I need my brain to be wiped clean of all the thoughts because otherwise my brain is just like, it just won't turn off. I mean, that's like my probably biggest complaint (laughs) uh, is that my brain just won't stop. So that's really brilliant. And I just want the other little thing to mention about the drugs actually is that I've stopped falling asleep in the afternoon. I used to get so sleepy in the afternoon. And that used to be quite a problem. I used to take myself off to bed sometimes. I haven't slept for we- haven't slept in the afternoon for weeks, but I am sleeping at night, which is good. Um, so yeah, the Peloton is is brilliant. Does that sound like that's going to be good for you? Oh my gosh! Well, the reason I got it is first of all, I can not only compete with myself in my times, but I can also compete with other people. <laughs> and I love the idea of streaks because I'm really good around streaks. I have several friends with a Peloton, yeah. and I understand that we could set up like a riding group. So I may do a smart ass group because oh, I- you totally should. That would be brilliant. That would be so good. Yeah. yeah. I know. I can't wait. I can't wait. Unfortunately, I think they're running like seven weeks behind, but I need something new. Yeah. And especially the music, you can turn it up really quite loud and you can sing and, you Uh know, it's, it's just great for laying off steam. It's brilliant. Wonderful. Okay. Do you have a number one workaround? So I think I've probably already mentioned it but for me it's that time blocking is actually finding time in the day like clear run of time when you can actually get things done when there's no interruptions and exercise is probably my number two so when you say time blocking do you have a certain amount of time and do you put in your calendar what you're going to do during that time and do you do that all ahead or do you have a to-do list you know what you need to do you've got this block of time and then you decide when you start sitting down for your time block what you're going to work on yeah, so it varies. I have certain things. So I send an email to my email list every single day by 7am. So that's the very first thing I do. Then I do an Instagram post. And now my third thing I do is I share a testimonial from a client. <laughs> so I do have I have some habitual things that I do. They're the first, second and third thing that I do in the morning. And that really works for me is actually not having to think about what it is that you've got to do. Because I think that can be overwhelming, can't it? Just having to think, what is it that I'm going to do? And that can stop you from doing stuff. But if I sit down to do a like a 50 minute, say, focus mate session, I will think, okay, just one thing, I think. What one thing can I get done rather than trying to do kind of 50? <laughs> like what one thing could I achieve? So I always try and I've got my habitual things that I do. And I think that really works because you don't have to think about it. But yeah, before a session, I would always try and think, you know, what's the one thing that I can get done in this session? Okay. So you don't have a calendar with your whole week planned out as far as time blocked, everything you're going to get done and when? No, no, that would be too restrictive for me. I think I can cope with, I can cope with the sort of doing those three things habitually. But I think if if it was all blocked out, I think I would start to want to break out. I'd start to want to rebel against that, I think. Got it. Yeah, me too. I look at those kinds of calendars and I think I wish I could be like that, but no friggin' way. <laughs> yeah, I think you need a bit of space for creativity, don't you? And you need you need that space. Yeah, and I also need a little bit of, and, and maybe that's what you mean by space, that 
it's just not locked down on me. If it's locked down on me, I can't be creative. I, I need to be able to be when it comes, it comes, you know, to a certain yeah. extent. And usually if I'm up against a huge time deadline, it's coming, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I just totally. Need time for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Janet, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. So where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what it is that you do? So the best place to find me is on Instagram. So I'm at Jan Murray UK and um, that's the best place to connect with me. Like send me a DM or um, yeah, just, just get in touch with me there. My website is janetmurray.co.uk, but Instagram is the social media site where I'm hanging around the most. Wonderful. Well, you are now the longest podcast episode we've ever <laughs> probably by, I don't know, close to 20 minutes. <laughs> but it was so interesting. I, I was excited about this one. So thank you again so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's so, have, Having listened to so many episodes, it's been so helpful to me. It feels like a bit of a, bit of a privilege to be on the show. It's, it's really exciting for me. Well, thank you so much. So that's what I have for you for this week. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this episode with Janet, please let us know by leaving us a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their brilliant ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message or reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. That's my email. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.